Mary. And I'm Shelly. We're the hosts of the Better Planners podcast from the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association. The Better Planners podcast highlights the real stories about real solutions from the ground level work of planners, community development advocates, and allied professionals. We hope the Better Planners podcast helps us all become better planners. So welcome to the first episode of the Better Planners podcast um, through the Oregon chapter of APA. Uh, Mary, what can listeners expect from this podcast? Well, we're expecting a couple of things with this podcast. The first being we'll have longer, more interview-based episodes quarterly, about quarterly. That's our goal. Um, with other planners, other experts in allied fields, um, similar professions, or just um, community members doing really awesome work. And then we'll also have kind of shorter episodes that are more discussion-based, like this one today that we're going to have. Awesome. Speaking of discussion-based episodes, Shelley, how can uh, listeners be part of this podcast? Yeah, so we actually have a phone number that uh, listeners can call. Uh, leave a voicemail and share with us the challenges that they're facing, the obstacles that they're trying to overcome related to their planning work. Uh, something that we're both really interested in are the wicked problems of planning, like the big, hairy, seemingly insurmountable problems that planners face in our work. So this phone number you can call, leave a voicemail, you can be anonymous. You can give us your name, whatever information you want to give. Ask your question. If it cuts you off, call back again and we will play them in our episodes and we'll talk about what we think. So that number to call is 503-433-7545. And we'll have that number in the show notes as well. And people can also email too. We have an email account at Better Planners Podcast at gmail.com and planners is plural so many ways to get in contact with us that's right (laughs) perfect so mary what are we talking about today well we have a couple of questions that we'll discuss kind of more about our background that we got into planning kind of learn a little more about us and finally what are our hottest planning takes oh that's a good one i have some hot takes me too i definitely have some hot takes (laughs) great so i'm looking at this list of four really good questions that uh, we're going to use to help listeners get to know who we are, the context that we're coming from. Yeah, so let's start with the first one. So Mary, tell me a story from when you were younger that impacted your decision to pursue urban planning as a career. Sure. So I have a roundabout way of getting to urban planning, which I think a lot of planners probably have very similar experiences But mine is really with how I interacted with the city that I lived in. So I am born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I went to high school in downtown Portland. And if you know Portland and downtown, uh, it's got lots of really amazing transit options for people. So I, I grew up as a teenager taking the bus, taking our max, taking our streetcar pretty much daily with my friends, having this really awesome environment to kind of experience and feel freedom within the city that I don't know every teenager in America had, especially if you weren't in urban sort of environments like mm-hmm. like I was. 
And they also happened to have at that time a Fairless Square in downtown Portland. And it was basically a certain square blocks, number of square blocks in downtown Portland was free. So you could use transit for free. It was really amazing for a teenager who didn't have a lot of money. And if it were me, I would say you should have that again. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. But I would agree. But it was just a really amazing way to experience the city that I grew up in. And I didn't quite realize until I was a little bit older that that was basically jump-started my interest into city planning and urban planning. I ended up going to a college that had a planning program as an undergrad, which was really awesome because I didn't really know what I wanted to do going into college, which again, I think a lot of people also feel that. And I sort of bumbled my way, way around. I was interested in architecture, but then I didn't end up doing that. And I, I found out about planning because of my interest in public health and transportation. Again, kind of things that I really enjoyed doing as a younger person and realizing, oh, you could do this as part of your job. It's kind of amazing. So that's sort of how I stumbled into, into planning. And I've been doing it for the last six, almost seven years now. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. You know, transit's a gateway drug <laughs> to civic engagement. That's it really right. Is. What about you? So I got into planning also in kind of a roundabout way. I did my undergrad in philosophy, which, you know, we could have a conversation all day about what studying philosophy means, what it means to do philosophy. But kind of uh, what I've landed on is that doing philosophy means asking why something is the way that it is and why isn't it otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about unpacking the assumptions that we have about the world, about our experiences, about our thoughts, and digging into them and asking questions like, why why isn't it some other way? So with that kind of intellectual background, my senior year of my undergrad, I knew that I wanted to go to grad school, but I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to study. So I was at the public library one day, just looking through the shelves, And I happened upon a book of hypothetical designs of car-free cities. And it really like scratched that itch for me of like that idea of questioning assumptions Hmm. and recognizing like, wow, we have all of these assumptions about the way that cities are designed, about how they're designed for cars. And this book really challenged that, which coming from a background in philosophy, I was really interested in. So from there, I sort of started learning more about urban design, urban form, planning. My husband, uh, I had just gotten married. My husband got accepted to a PhD program at Ohio State. And I was looking at grad programs at Ohio State to see if there was something that I would be interested in doing. And they had a master's in city planning. And so I got into that. I learned pretty quickly that um, they had a dual degree program where you could do the master of city planning and a master of public administration. Oh, nice. Which, which I've always been interested in, like public policy and, and government and governance and all of that. So I did that. And then I worked as a planner in Ohio for a couple of years before I decided I wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest, moved out to Oregon, and I've been a planner out here for three years. Nice. Yeah. I love the fact that both of us used uh, public facilities to kind of find out more about planning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that 
I that yeah that is so interesting I love that that it was the publicly funded stuff the publicly funded infrastructure that that got us into wanting to participate more yeah. in the public realm yeah yeah that's so interesting cool okay so the second question is good what do you think are the most significant issues that face planning in Oregon and do you think those issues are being addressed well or do you think they can be addressed better I don't think this will come as a surprise to most people, but I think one of the most significant issues facing the planning profession in Oregon right now is housing. Mm -hmm. Kind of a duh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not just in Oregon, but all over the country. And we just, for a state that has pretty strong land use planning at a state level, we just have not been keeping up with the changes and the need needs related to housing in Oregon, especially with change in demographics, change in in just the population. Like I, I don't think the planners in the 1970s predict would have predicted the amount of people mm-hmm. that are now living in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And so that snowballs into all of these issues related to housing. And basically the lack of affordable housing at all income levels, essentially, not Mm -hmm. even just lower middle income, all income levels. We just need more housing in general. Yeah. (laughs) And so I I would say that's the most significant issue that we're facing at the moment, especially with how it correlates with housing and and climate change, like climate refugees. I feel Mm -hmm. like we're going to be seeing a lot more influx of people into Oregon especially with all of the flooding that's been happening in California mm-hmm. and all, all of that going on, we really need to be taking more of an offensive side of things versus we've sort of been lacking and kind of like being in defense. If I'm going to keep using sports references, um, <laughs> we're not thinking creatively enough about how to address this in a way that re- really, really needs to make a dent. Because at the moment, the way we're, we're going about things, like we've made a lot of really good changes at the state level, but at the same time, it's a lot of change for people, especially people that have lived in a community and a neighborhood that has looked and felt the same for the last 50 years. And now their, their neighbor could build a triplex next to them. And that sounds scary to a lot of people. But at the same time, I don't know if we're having enough of a discussion or a deeper discussion about, yes, change is happening, but here's the reasons why it needs to happen. Or here's the reasons why Mm -hmm. it's beneficial for us to do these things or consider these things or think about these things versus just having a knee-jerk reaction to change, which again, easier said than done. Change is scary. But I myself am a millennial. I can't afford to buy a house. I have to keep renting. Rent prices are going up because of that. It's it's going to keep snowballing if we don't become more aggressive. And I feel like Oregon really is doing, is being more aggressive probably than other states. Yeah. But I struggle to think, are we really doing enough? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I totally agree. I, I think... I agree. I think one of the biggest issues facing planners in Oregon is housing mm-hmm. and all of the issues that orbit housing. 
And and I, I think we're doing this. I think when we talk about like OAPA's legislative priorities, DLCD is the Department of Land Conservation and Development, the state agency, their, their legislative priorities, you know, we are trying to get to a place where we're more proactive instead of reactive. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see kind of going more in that direction, more of a, mm-hmm. of a proactive approach to housing planning. I'm really interested in seeing more diversity in legislative approaches. Yeah. Someone could argue that we're, we're relying too much on market forces when we could benefit from uh, uh, approaching this from different angles, from different perspectives. And I agree that it seems like Oregon as a state is on the right track in, in getting to a place where we're taking this seriously and we're trying to be proactive in planning for housing and in planning for population growth. You know, I, I work for a smallish town and I 100% sympathize with residents who are not happy about growth, aren't happy about in-migration. Mm-hmm. I sympathize with with community leaders who are frustrated with, you know, the the lack of local control. Yes. And so I would, I would love to see something from the state on how we as planners can message these yeah. topics and how we can communicate these topics better and talk to the people in our communities about how, no, this is actually good for us. This is actually good for our community. So I'm excited to see, you know, what happens. I'm hopeful, but it is definitely a a really pressing issue that is multifaceted and has a lot of variables at play and needs to be addressed from multiple perspectives. Yeah. And, and planning only has control over so many things too, which is is also the interesting part because, you know, we don't have control over the cost of construction. We don't have control over the cost of land. Those are, are huge factors when we talk about like right. market rate development of housing that plays into the end sale price of housing. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would love to see more of an aggressive way of trying to assist market rate development to build more middle income housing because in some of the communities that I worked in, yeah, there once like the middle housing legislation kind of went through and, you know, the city council approved it and everything. There's some interest, but it still is like the norm to build subdivisions of single family homes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and where can planners have more of a bigger part or role in one? Okay, yeah, they're allowed now. Okay, cool. But how can we really help create more incentives or some way to kind of really showcase that that we're not trying to get rid of single family homes. You can still build those, but what do you need to kind of go, go in a different way and do things a little bit differently? And, you know, there's so many factors that play into that, you know, building codes too. I mean, I think we need to have a more holistic look and approach beyond just land, what the land use does. Yeah. And I think planners can be really good conveners of those holistic discussions. Yeah, I think that kind of goes in line with sort of the contemporary planning theory right now as planners, as communicators mm-hmm. and coalition builders. I think that that's a, a really important aspect of our profession that uh, is becoming increasingly important. Agreed. This third question. What do you hope listeners of this podcast do after listening to it what do you hope they take away from from these episodes we're going to be making yeah so 
I think, and I, I think you probably agree as well, we really want this podcast to be a useful tool for other planners, other community development type professions, um, other just like community activists or people that are just interested in planning and how it relates to them and their communities. Mm -hmm. I, I would hope that the episodes we have are something that they can take back to their coworkers, their bosses, their elected officials, their family friends, and start discussions of interesting, unique, and innovative ways to handle like planning's biggest issues that are happening today. So so that we can start having like these more proactive, innovative ideas and understand that that comes from, you know, the planners on the ground level, the ones that are at the counters, their local city government, you know, the the ones that are at the community meetings. We want these to be really ground level type discussions and stories that will be helpful in how you do your day to day work. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I would I would love for this to be like the creation of a toolbox. Yes. You know, things that people can take away and implement in their own communities. I would also love to see it be a platform for perspective broadening. Mm -hmm. I would love it to be, you know, that that someone who listens to this can come away and, and say, you know, I hadn't considered that before or I hadn't thought yes. about this issue that way. Yeah. I'm really hopeful that that we can do that, especially when it comes to planning on social issues, mm -hmm. particularly equity in, in thinking about how we engage with, how we plan for, how we communicate with, how we work within and work for historically marginalized communities. Yes. You know, pe people who have not been traditionally well served by planning in the past, you know, really thinking about how can we, how can we do better moving into the future in not only in including those populations in our planning efforts, but also leveraging, leveraging the assets that they have in our communities mm -hmm. and recognizing our assets in our communities. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hope that that's kind of a, a, a very specific thing that people take away from, from this podcast. Yeah. And I would love to have the episodes highlight the good work that marginalized communities are also doing mm -hmm. already as well. A lot of them are, mm -hmm. are already oh, yeah. doing amazing work and highlighting how planners can assist in the work that's already being done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that that, that has been kind of an unfortunate trend in planning since since planners started taking an eye towards the idea of advocacy, mm -hmm. the idea of equity, that it's been a lot of like, we're the experts. We're going to yeah. come in and do it for you. And, you know and ignoring like no people in those communities have been doing the work exactly yeah I think that that's that's a really important perspective to understand yeah and there's a lot we can learn from that and and I would just love to hear other stories of other planners who have been able to do that as well um or what are some like tools or things that they've learned that have really helped them shape their work to be more mm. equitable like, for example, I have a story where, and I tell this a lot to people sometimes, but I have a story where we did a focus group in one of the communities that I used to work in. And it was a Spanish-speaking focus group, so Spanish speakers in the community. And granted, they're not going to speak for all, 
all Spanish speakers, but it was about housing and they loved the idea of cottage clusters because it just meshed mm-hmm. really well with the way that they lived their lives culturally. They were more multi-generational. They wanted their family members to be close to them. They wanted their the aunts and uncles and siblings and grandparents to be close by in a, in a really close-knit community and cottage clusters would allow them to do that. But that had been a housing type that wasn't allowed in since the like 1950s. And how is that affecting different communities and cultures within our yeah. own cities? Yeah. And so I, I want to have more of those discussions and have planners bring up those things that they've learned. You know, I'm I'm a white female. And so that's not something that I would have considered in terms of cottage cluster housing. But, but I was so happy that we gave them the space for them to to talk about that so then i did know and now i talk about it all the time with people yeah (laughs) yeah yeah that's so interesting um and then this last question mary what is your hottest planning take okay i definitely have a hot planning take (laughs) tell me i want to know it um and if you've ever worked with me you've probably heard me talk about it too <laughs> we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier when we were talking about ways that we could like be doing a little bit better and how i sort of like had a roundabout way of getting into planning so i i started out in my undergrad actually trying to get a business degree and then realizing mm-hmm. that was not for me <laughs> mm-hmm. and i was not good at accounting <laughs> um <laughs> But I took marketing classes yeah. as part of that, right? And so I've always had this, like, in in the background, have had this sort of business backdrop on things when I think about things. And ultimately, I think that planning needs to learn how to communicate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with the amount of community engagement that we do, the amount of, I mean, basically, we need to be marketing these plans and ideas to the general community. Mm-hmm. And planning is so technical sometimes and we can get really in the weeds about things, but it is a skill and it's something that I think we all really need to work on is to be able to dispel that information in easy, digestible language for the average person. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And a lot of it is story-based. You know, it's like yeah. people are attracted to emotion. Uh, as much as we want to say like, oh, but here's the facts. If you don't tie it to something, it's really hard for somebody to think about something in a different way, right? So yeah. when we did like community engagement in my graduate program, we had this like final thesis, group thesis process. For anyone that's gone to Portland State University for their grad program, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but We had this interesting, uh, we were doing this whole like affordable housing plan for a county in in Portland, um, which is kind of a lot to ask of grad students to do, but we did it. (laughs) And we had this amazing graphic that I think we actually got from Metro, which is a regional government here in Oregon, basically showcasing the type of worker and what they could afford what type of rent and what type of mortgage they could afford, but they tied it with a worker and who they were. So a teacher could only afford this amount of money. And I, and these people had not been at 
at this event had not probably bought or rented a house in decades. Oh, yeah. And so they just were a little bit out of touch and they had no idea what it was currently like. But when you put into perspective of this is what a teacher makes, they all they probably all know what, who a teacher in their lives are. They've all yeah. had them. And it puts a face to a fact. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's it's something that you really need to work on. It's not something that everyone's going to naturally be good at, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be at the forefront, in my opinion, of planning. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, good planning is is fundamentally about communication and communicating ideas and marketing those ideas, right? Getting buy-off. Yes. Getting buy-off from the plans that you that you create. Yeah, that's so important. That's so important. I really like how you emphasize this idea. I like how you said it, putting a face to a fact. Yeah. And and telling a story and creating like a narrative. Yes. To, to communicate the idea is is really important and really impactful. Yeah, yeah. Because, well, people are more persuaded by things that they can relate to, right? Mm-hmm. Not that, you know, we're trying to persuade people and, you know, say that you need to think like us, but it's it's to give them the opportunity to think differently about something. Yeah. In a different way. That maybe challenges what they thought before, which is fine. Yeah. But it's it needs to be something that's really digestible and simple because otherwise it's going to go over their heads and it's going to feel like we're just talking over them and not trying yeah. to explain to them about things. Because yeah. like I said, we're Oregon is going through a lot of change right now and it's very scary for people. Mm-hmm. If we aren't going to effectively communicate to people, it's going to cause ideas and plans and tools to stop dead on their tracks before they even get anywhere. Yeah. Especially with just how skeptical people are about government. Yeah. That, that, that ability to communicate and to build relationships and to build trust Mm -hmm. is integral to good planning. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, I would love to have more episodes in this podcast kind of talking with people that are really good at communicating Mm -hmm. and they may not even be planners. Sure. Quite yeah. frankly. And I think yeah. we need to rely on on people besides like we need to go outside of the planning field mm-hmm. and work more with visual communicators, work more with artists who can draw out really amazing things that can really convey an idea to people. You know, we, we have a lot of these really grand ideas, but if you can't visually understand it, it's going to be really hard for somebody to say, oh, yeah, I'm okay with a duplex going next to my house if they don't even know what it's going to look like. Sure. I, I would love to be able to to have more creative ways of, of communicating to people and showing planners how they can rely on, like, planners don't have to be the ones to do everything, right? But we can know who to go to that can help, you know, market or, or communicate an idea to people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What's your hottest take? My, I have two. I have two hot takes. Okay, great. The first one is about the profession of planning, Mm -hmm. which is that I think this really unfortunate thing happens to planners at some point in their careers. That is, it's a virus. Uh And (laughs) it is when planners become cynical Mm. about the work that we do. Yep. I think that... We are at this unfortunate point in our profession where we equate cynicism with wisdom. And we think that if you're idealistic, that you're just naive and 
Uh, you just haven't been in the field long enough. And I hate that because it's lazy and it's boring and it's unimaginative. Yeah. I think planning attracts idealists because it, it fundamentally planning is about this idea of, hey, this this thing is a problem now, but we can create a set of conditions to actualize a future in which this thing is better. Right. That's like the core fundamental assumption of planning. And so it attracts idealists. And we just do this thing where you know, if you're a planner and you're an idealist, it just hasn't been beaten out of you yet. Yeah. You just haven't like come to your senses and realized that there are all of these bureaucratic and economic and social and political and legal systems that you have to wade through in order to make anything happen. And here's the thing. Like, I think planning, good planning operates in this like liminal space between idealism and realism. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally idealistic in that it says we can create a better future, but it's also very realistic because because there are all of these systems that you have to work through to try to make that better future happen. And I think there there is space between being naive and being cynical. Yeah. And that is a difficult space to occupy, but I think it's very important to learn how to do it. And I, I hate I hate when I see planners think that it's a it's an all or nothing it's an either or that you know if you're in the field long enough you become cynical yeah that's my that's my first hot take yeah. <laughs> well and I've even I've even had myself you know I've worked in city government planning for six years and I totally have found myself in that scenario as well being like somebody's telling me what they want to do and I'm like well good luck getting that through <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I'm aware of that mindset because I also have noticed it in other people and it really bugs me. And I check myself when I have that kind of mindset because I don't want to be the person that automatically right away is like, I already know the systems. I know what it's going to take yeah. to even think about this and it's not worth it. Whereas... Whereas we could be the ones to kind of help navigate somebody through it. Yes, it's going to be complicated maybe sometimes, or it's like a completely, totally different idea than what we've ever thought before about something. But these planners can be the ones to help entertain that idea yeah. versus the ones to squash it. Yeah, I like that. That planners ought to be the ones to, to think more broadly about what's possible. Well, because I think people get into planning, and if you, you've talked about this before, they get, they get into planning because they have this really amazing idea of wanting to create change in yeah. communities to benefit everyone. And there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through sometimes, and it can be really alarming sometimes when you first get into planning. And maybe having like more resources, especially for younger planners, to help them navigate that change. Because when you go from a school environment where you're talking about all these really grand, big ideas, and then you get into the planning world and you start working and you go, oh, like, this is different, you know, which I, I'm probably not even just in, in planning, probably a lot of, you know, types of degrees. But if there's a way that we can help 
keep that level of enthusiasm and radicalness and just general wanting to really, really tackle some of these wicked problems that we have. I, th I think this podcast maybe could help be part of that, of, of helping people keep that mindset, no matter how many years you've been implanting. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And then my second hot take, uh, it, probably not a hot take among planners, but I think definitely a hot take among the population at large is that I hate lawns. <laughs> They're <laughs> an incredible waste of space and a huge waste of water. Oh my gosh. There are parts <laughs> of the country where like they, they just need to be illegal. We're planting these non-native grasses, these super water yeah. intensive grasses in places that like experience massive amounts of drought and don't have enough water for everybody to water their lawn. And they just, they're just this weird like relic of English aristocracy that we adopted in American suburbia. Yeah. Anyway. Boo grass. <laughs> Let's find creative different ways I mean, I'm to not, have I'm green not, space. I'm not anti-grass. I'm anti-lawn. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's fair. 